Father in heaven, this morning we're going to get into, well, some of the difficult things in your word, convicting things. Father, things that we need to hear, sometimes we don't want to. So I pray that you'll make us all listeners. I pray that you'll open up our, our ears, not just those on our head, but the ears of our heart, so that we can hear what you have for us this morning. Teach us through your word. I pray, Father, that you'll make me a communicator of truth. I pray that your spirit will speak this morning. And I pray that we'll all be receptive. I ask that in Jesus' name and with great faith. Amen. If you would, grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Philippians. I'm going to share some teaching with you this morning that some of you are going to find yourself saying, gosh, I wish I just didn't even come today. Some of the rest of you are going to say, that's exactly what I needed to hear. I am fairly positive that there is very little middle ground in the, the things that we are going to look at today. You're either going to hate it or you're going to love it. It's one or the other. So let's start in Philippians chapter 2. I really like the way this reads from the New International Version. I teach out of the English Standard Version, but I like the way this passage reads out of the New International Version, so I'm going to read from that. If you're reading from the ESV or any other translation, it'll sound just a little bit different, but read along. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Right in the middle of that, in verse 5, is a passage that I want you to set up housekeeping with. I want you to just pitch your tent right there this morning. Here it is again. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, if it doesn't read that way in your Bible and you don't see those words right in front of you, here they are up on the screen. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is some of that teaching that I would say some of you are going to hate. Now, some of you are going to love, but most of us are going to hate. We're going to push back against this. My attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That is impossible. I'm not Jesus. I don't have the same character I don't have the same background. I don't have the same abilities. That's our, our normal argument. I don't have the divinity that Jesus had. So for the Bible to tell me that my attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus seems completely impossible. And if it doesn't seem impossible to you, it seems like a daunting command that's just too big. It's out of reach. But once you finish pushing back against the teaching, once you finish arguing with it and, and finally you surrender to the fact that the Bible tells you this, there's a great deal for us to learn from it. It begins with this word, attitude. Now, pay close attention 
to what Paul is not teaching us. He's not teaching us that your abilities need to be the same as that of Christ Jesus because you don't have the same background he does. You don't have his divinity. He's not telling you that your actions and reactions have to be exactly the same as his. You don't have the same wisdom that Jesus does, and neither do I. He says your attitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So let's break that down a little bit. I know that you know what attitude is, but here's a a pretty good working definition of it. Attitude is a feeling or a way of thinking that affects a person's behavior. Now that's a, a really good, just simplistic way of looking at what attitude really is so that we can apply it in this passage. Attitude, it's a feeling or a way of thinking that affects a person's behavior. Now, a lot of us are completely aware of that. We know that. We could define attitude if we had to, to anybody that might ask. But did you know that we can break it down further than this definition? There are three main characteristics, three main facets that come together to shape our attitude. This has been studied for the better part of 50 years. There's nothing new about this. It's been around a long time. These three facets come together to determine our attitude. Every one of us, these three things come into play. Here they are. The cognitive, the affective, and the behavioral. All three of those areas shape what Paul's talking about. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That means the cognitive part of who you are, the affective part of who you are, and the behavioral part of who you are. Now, the behavioral part probably resonates for you, but those other two may be kind of out there a little bit. So if you're wondering what that means, here's a pretty good working definition of all three. We'll put it up on the screen. The cognitive component is based on the information, knowledge, or opinions we have on certain issues or situations. The affective component is based on our emotions or how we feel about the same issues or situations. The behavioral component reflects how we act or behave in light of those issues or situations. Now, that's all three of them broken down. If we want to make it a little easier to digest, here it is. The cognitive deals with what you think or the opinions that you have about any number of different things. The affective is really how you feel. It's the heart issue that comes into play on any situation. And then behavioral is how you react. For the most part, when we think about attitude, we always land on this last one how we behave in regard to certain issues or situations, what our actions are. So when we want to change our attitude, we always try to change our behavior. But folks, listen to this. You can seldom ever change your behavior until you address the first two, how you think about something and how you feel about it. You may try to change your behavior and you may be successful for a very, very short amount of time. But then your behavior is going to go back to reflecting those first two things. What you think, what your opinions are about something, and how you feel about it. So when you try to change your attitude, you cannot just choose to change your behavior. You have to look at all three of these things. By the way, parents, if you deal with attitudinal issues with your children, 
more often than not, you try to change their behavior. Maybe you need to sit down and ask them what they're thinking about something. Maybe there's wisdom in asking them how they're feeling about it. Open up a dialogue and a conversation so that you can really get into the attitude side of behavior. Deal with the cognitive. Deal with the affective. Don't just deal with the outward demonstration of the attitude, the behavior. And the same thing is true for yourself. If you're wrestling with an attitude issue and you know that you're coming across as crazy moody or short or you are coming across as judging and condemning of other people or you all of a sudden realize that folks that are close to you are cutting a wide path around you and you know it's because of your attitude, don't just try to change your behavior. Ask yourself why you're doing the things you're doing. Open up a dialogue with yourself and hopefully invite God into it, prayerfully invite God into it so that you can understand what's going on. Once you do that, you can actually embrace what the Apostle Paul is teaching back in Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I got to think about this the way Jesus would. I need to feel about this the way Jesus does so that I can behave appropriately so that my actions will follow. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, if you want to move past those three things, the cognitive, the affective, and the behavioral, and really take a look at how a person is feeling about certain things, if you want to understand attitude, be it someone else's or your own, then I would encourage you to pay very, very close attention to their I am statements. Their I am statements. Here it is up on the screen for you. Their I am statements. You may think to yourself, I don't really understand what Phil's talking about, I am statements. Well, I'm going to let the Bible illustrate it for us because there is no better illustration. And if we remember that Paul says our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, we ought to pay close attention to Jesus's I am statements. Now, typically in Bible study, when we let our minds come to rest on the I am statements of Jesus, we go to the Gospel of John because there are more I am statements from Jesus in that one book than anywhere else in Scripture. But usually when people get into a study of Jesus' I am statements, they land on seven. There are seven in the Gospel of John that help us understand that Jesus is God and He is the Savior of the world. So we usually just study those seven I am statements. Today we're going to push past those seven and we're going to look at a few others because they speak directly to attitude. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. His I am statements shape his attitude. When you read all of them, you can see the cognitive, the affective, and the behavioral aspects of his attitude in all of these I am statements, the same way we can in anybody else's life if we pay attention to their I am statements. So I'm going to show you a number of them this morning. I'm not going to ask you to turn in your Bibles. We're going to put them up on the screen. If you want to take a picture, I encourage you to do that. If you're writing notes by hand, you're going to have to write fast because these are going to come really fast. So it would be easier to take a picture if you happen to have a phone or an iPad with you. Let's just walk through them. Here we go. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 48, I am the bread of life. That statement caused a great deal of controversy. 
I mean a great deal of controversy among his opponents as well as his friends, but it opened up all kinds of conversations. Number two, John chapter 7, verse 29. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. That's Jesus saying, I, I know God differently than anybody else does. I like that one a lot. John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's a promise attached to Jesus's I am statement. Number four, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. That got some people's attention. John chapter 8, verse 23. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. John chapter 10, verse 7. Folks, we're the sheep. He's the gate. Number six, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 11. Number seven, I am God's son. John chapter 10, verse 36. Number eight, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. John eleven twenty five. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so for that is what I am. John 13, 13. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. John 13, verse 19. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. John 14, 11. Again, showing relationship with God the Father. And here's the last one, number 13. I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. John chapter 15, verse 1. Each one of those I am statements gives us insight into the attitude of Jesus. So when Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, these verses, because of the I am connection, show us his attitude. But there's one in particular I was kind of hoping would stand out to you. It's not on this particular page. It was on the one before it. So Terry, let's just go back one page. Is there one that jumps out at you? One that, that sticks out? About number seven. I am God's son, John chapter 10, verse 36. In the realm of attitude, that one shapes everything. I am God's son. Now, Paul would tell us in Philippians chapter 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And if this is his attitudinal statement, I am God's son, then we have no way of ever getting there ourselves. We have no way of, of making the same statement. So it seems like we're destined for failure in this, but we're not. We're not. It's true. You are not God's son. You are not Jesus. Not going to argue with that, not one bit, but you are a child of God. First John chapter 3. First John chapter 3. Now, turn there with me. Verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. You're a child of God. If you have accepted Jesus as your Savior... You are a child of God. That shapes your attitude. What you believe about that statement that you are a child of God determines everything else about you. 
It determines your cognitive thinking. It determines your effective emotions and feelings. And it should determine your behavior, your attitude. It shapes everything. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. And when you can embrace that you are a redeemed child of the King, your attitude about everything changes. It changes. Now, I put that out in the way that I did on purpose. Until a person embraces that they are a redeemed child of the King, until a person embraces what Jesus does for us through transformation, through calling us to Him and making us His own, our sense of identity, our sense of who we are is left in the very surface things. Sit down and visit with somebody and ask them to define themselves outside of Christ. They're going to tell you what they do for a living. They'll tell you who they're married to. They'll tell you how many children they have. And in a few rare situations, they'll tell you what they're passionate about. But once a person has given their life to Christ and they have experienced that type of redemption, that type of change to the point of understanding that you are a child of God, you are a joint heir with Jesus, different illustrations right out of the Bible that help us understand this. When that happens... When that happens, everything changes, including your attitude. And you take identity to a much deeper level. Somebody asks you to tell, uh, tell, you about, tell them about you, let me get that right, in the right order, you'll skip over some of those surface things and you'll let them know who you belong to. You'll let them know whose child you are. You'll let them know what the Lord has done for you. That's... That's what God's after. That's how our attitude becomes like Jesus's. Our I am statements change dramatically. They start to look like this. I am God's child. I am forgiven. There are no accusations against me. I have the mind of Christ. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am deeply loved. I am living with a grand purpose. I am living with a grand purpose. Boy, your attitude changes when you embrace those things, and it all begins in figuring out your I am statements. Who are you in Christ? I am a child of God. Once you can say that, then other things begin to fall into place, like this last one, living with a grand purpose. Let me share with you just a, a deep promise of the Bible, one that a lot of folks do not understand, do not embrace, and struggle to accept. You have a purpose. That is a promise right out of Scripture. You have a purpose. Now, let me show it to you. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Join me in verse 1, will you? Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you catch verse 10? Man, highlight verse 10. Do whatever you have to. Underline verse 10 right up at the top of the the page. My purpose. Make sure that you could thumb back through your Bible and land on verse 10. Listen to it again. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have a purpose. You were created for a purpose. And once your attitude lines up in such a way that you can understand that, you can unlock the purpose and begin living according to it. You can start doing the things that God created you to do because you have a purpose. It is a promise of the Bible. It is a promise of Scripture. It is a promise of God. You have a purpose. Now I want you to listen really close because I'm about to say something that may shock some of you. So if you're on your phone and ostensibly trying to look like you're looking up Scripture, but you're actually on Facebook, get off Facebook. (laughs) If you're checking your email, if you're making a grocery list, but you want everybody to think that you're actually looking at Scripture, stop and listen, because I'm about to say something shocking, and so I want you to hear it. Everybody ready? Shake your head yes. Here we go. God's eyes are looking over the entire world to find people that understand this. God's eyes are looking over the entire world, looking for people that understand this. Now, I know some of you are are a little taken back by that. What do you mean God's eyes are looking over the entire world? God knows everything. Why does he have to look over the entire world? That doesn't make any sense. Well, I didn't make it up. I got it out of the Bible. So let me show it to you. So now, stay off Facebook, but go with me to the Old Testament, book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. Oh, turn there with me. You want to see this. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. Some translations say to give support to those whose heart is fully committed toward Him. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. I didn't make it up. It comes right out of Scripture. It comes right out of Scripture. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context with that because those words were shared with a man who understood purpose. 
Those words were shared with a man who understood what God had created him to do. His name is Asa. He was the king of Judah. He became king during a difficult season in their history. But listen to what happened when he did. This is chapter 14, verse 1. Just turn back to the left a couple chapters. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 1. Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for ten years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandments. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. When Asa became king, the nation of Israel wasn't walking with God. Asa said, on my watch, we will. And you heard what he did. And you heard what God did in response to it. For the first 10 years of his reign, Asa had peace. There was no war. He was able to accomplish great things because he could focus solely on returning the nation to God. At the 10-year mark, the king of Ethiopia wanted to march against Judah. And they did. A million-man army came against Judah. Now, the Bible would tell us that Asa did not have man for man the army to match them. He had 580,000 men with him, but he was up against a one million man army. He may not have had man for man what Ethiopia had, but you know who he did have? He had God. And his 580,000 men trampled on the Ethiopian army. They didn't just trample on them, they killed every one of them. Every one of them. Ethiopia ran for home. Judah chased. And they caught every one of them. Ethiopia would never be a threat against Judah again. Because he marched in the power of the Lord. He knew his purpose. He knew what it meant to be a king. And he did what God commanded him to do. A few years later, he'd have to do the same thing against the Libyan army. But he was still progressing towards God. He was still leading the nation into a relationship with God, and God went right with him, went right with him, and he trounced the Libyan army. By the time we get to chapter 16, we find Asa in his 35th year of reigning. We'll back up to chapter 14, verse 18. Well, verse 19. And there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. 35 years. 35 years, God just watched over him. But listen to chapter 16, verse 1. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come into Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord in the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Ijan, Dan, Abel-Mahum, and all the shore cities of Naphtali. 
And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stores of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had been building, and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this. For from now on, you will have wars. 35 years. 35 years Asa walked with God. When he faced any kind of trouble, he cried out to God, trusting that God would take care of it, and God did. God did. He faced down an army twice his size in the power of the Lord. He faced down all kinds of different enemies in the power of the Lord because his attitude was right. But then when Israel came against him, cut off his supply lines, built a fort right on the road so nobody could get in or go out. He didn't cry out to God. Cried out to Syria. Cried out to another nation. He robbed the storehouse of God to pay them off. And now the seer comes to him and shares with him verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord are moving to and fro across the entire earth to find those who are fully committed to him, that he might strengthen them. You knew that. You knew that. And you were living it. What happened? What happened? In Asa's story, there's this fantastic warning that once we discover our purpose, it never stops. It never stops. Once you have discovered that you have a purpose in Christ, you live it till the end. Now that purpose may change, it may shift just a little bit, but we don't have the right to sit back and rest and say, somebody else could take this, or I don't need to be as fully committed as I once was. I don't need to trust God the way I used to. Once you have discovered that you have a purpose, that you are a redeemed child of the King, and you are living accordingly, you never come to a place in your life where you can sit back and say, I don't have to now. Or I could take some shortcuts. Or I could step around this, or I could step around that until the Lord calls you home. Until the Lord calls you home, you have a purpose in Christ. You have a purpose in Christ. You live it. You live it. You don't have the freedom to stop. You live it. Because when we stop, we compromise. When we stop and when we change our purpose, no longer driven by this understanding that I am a redeemed child of the King created by Him for good works, once that happens... We're in trouble. It's very fitting for me as I study this because I've been in ministry now 33 years. 33 years I've been in, in full-time ministry. I am 53 years old. I've walked with the Lord all my life. I've told you that repeatedly. By the time I was 15 years old, I was baptized when I was 10. By the time I was 15, I had, 
had made declarations in our youth ministry that said, I just, I just want to walk with God. By the time I was 17, I knew I wanted to be in ministry. That's just my story. Your story is different than mine. That's okay. We all have different stories. Love that the kingdom of God is created that way. Love that the Lord paints his canvas of his church with different colors. That's just my story. But I'm 33 years into ministry. That 35-year mark is approaching. That 35-year mark, that dangerous mark, is just right around the corner for me. I have to be careful of that. I have to be careful of that. I'll be honest with you, there was a, a period not so long ago where I thought maybe God was done with me, where He was finished with me. And I had to push past that to say that God is not done. God is not finished. And my purpose has not changed. Because the enemy wants to tell us that it has. The enemy wants to pull us away from that. We all have to push past those milestones to get to where we need to be, that we are staying on the path that God wants for us, doing the things that God wants for us. Because, folks, if there is anything that will be attacked outside of your salvation in Christ, it is your purpose. If there is anything that the enemy wants to destroy within you, it is your understanding of this promise from Scripture that you have meaning, that you have purpose. Peter would tell us that the enemy seeks to render us ineffective and unproductive in our service for the Lord. If he could sideline you in this, he could weaken the body of Christ. So he tries as hard as he can. And that's why, that's why Paul would say your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Because Jesus, once he said, I am the Son of God, never wavered. Never wavered all the way to the cross, all the way to the end. That same I am understanding, I am a redeemed child of the King with a purpose given to me by God, keeps me faithful all the way to the end. That's why God gives it to us. That's why God gives it to us. So we have to find it, and we have to live it. And that's what we were just learning in this whole story of Asa. But friends, pay attention to this. I may be saying something that is even a little more shocking than the last statement. So here we go. The closer we get to the return of Christ, the more urgent this issue becomes. The closer we get to the return of Christ the more urgent this issue becomes. Join me in Peter's first letter. 1 Peter, chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love how Peter starts. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
And then he goes on to tell us, whatever you do, whatever you do, however you speak, whatever your actions are, you do it all to the glory of God because the end of all things is near. It's getting closer and it's getting more urgent. So don't lose your purpose. Don't lose your meaning. Keep your attitude in check so that we're all headed the same direction. It isn't just Peter that would make that statement. There are other New Testament writers like Paul that would drive that same point home. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Listen to what he says. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's your purpose. No matter what you're doing, do it all to the glory of God. Every part of your life, every aspect, all the way to the end. All the way to the end. There is no point for you to wave the white flag. There is no point for you to say, spiritually, I'm retiring. There is no point for you to say, I'm shelving my purpose. You don't get that privilege. The eyes of the Lord are searching the entire world, looking to find people that understand this, that he might strengthen you in everything you do. How cool. How cool. God will be with you in every aspect of it. I love how Paul makes this so practical, and he does. In Colossians chapter 3, the heading in my Bible is very simply put on the new self. I want you to listen to what he says in this chapter. There is a tangible, practical aspect of purpose living that we will find in here. Listen to what he says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men." 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. See the tangible parts of it, driven home by the command, whatever you do. Wives, whatever you do. Husbands, whatever you do. Children, whatever you do. Parents, whatever you do. Employers, whatever you do. Employees, whatever you do. Do it all to the glory of the Lord. That is your purpose. That is your purpose. And then sit back and rest easy knowing this. When you understand that and you begin to live that way and God's eyes come to rest on you knowing that you're that person, He will give you the opportunities that you need and He will give you the strength needed to live up to the opportunities. All you have to do is be faithful and available within your purpose and God will do the rest. God will do the rest. You be faithful and available. And in your prayers, you tell God you are and then live in your purpose driven by this understanding. I am a child of God, and I have a purpose. And I want nothing more than to speak Jesus wherever I can and whenever I can. God will do the rest. God will do the rest.